Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Academic Life. Today, I'm joined by psychotherapist Charlotte Fox Weber for a conversation about meaningful interactions with strangers and building off of our previous conversation on her book, Tell Me What You Want. Welcome back to the show, Charlotte. Hello. Thank you so much for having me back. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk again. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Yes, I am a psychotherapist and writer, and I I grew up in Connecticut, and now I live in England. And there's always a lot more to say. I never I never quite know where to begin when someone says, "Tell me about yourself." Although it's a great invitation, I could begin by saying I I really felt a longing to come back and talk with you again, because when we first met and had our conversation, I was at a very low moment for personal reasons and so out of sorts and contemplated whether or not I should cancel, reschedule. And I ended up being just so grateful for the conversation we had because it was energizing and consoling and it was such a lift. I'm so glad to hear that. The podcast is, by its very nature, a series of conversations with strangers. Um, and I've found them to be meaningful, all of them. And I'm an introvert, and talking to strangers is something I was warned against as a kid. And as an introvert, your internal wiring warns you against. And yet we can have these meaningful encounters with strangers, provided we have the guardrails for them that allow us to do so safely. Yes. And it's always a risk. So it was absolutely possible that we could have had our conversation and not connected. And I mean, a risk in an emotional sense, not anything further. But I think that any time you have a conversation with a new person, you have to deal with the uncertainty of what that conversation will be like. And there's something about taking that risk that's also very creative and enlivening. And I think part of it is allowing for surprise. So I was I was feeling so dispirited about something that I was I was wanting to kind of predict doom and gloom. But there was some part of me that thought, I'm going to have this conversation. I mean, not that the podcast was just for myself. I certainly hope. But I'm going to have this conversation because it just might be an interesting conversation. And there's something really hopeful about that. You don't know that it will be interesting. You don't know that it will be worthwhile. But there's some kind of possibility of something yet to come. And I I really felt that strongly with you. I think there's something really valuable in having conversations with strangers. I feel like everyone's in a brain trust in some way. They They all know something that we don't know, or they all can offer a piece that 
maybe we also had, but we were discounting or not. Um, we chucked it down too far. We weren't using that piece anymore. And there's something in these one and done conversations. I think that it can, if we choose to, allow us to be fully present and really absorb and create a lot in those. Absolutely. And I think I think it's allowing for a kind of expansive experience. So meeting a stranger and feeling even just a moment of connection is a reminder of how how kind of close human beings can be, but it's also, it's paradoxical because it's also a reminder of how big the world is. And I think that when we're, when we're suffering, when we're lonely, life can feel incredibly narrow and it's, it's expansive when you are reminded that there are people you don't know, there are ideas that you haven't learned. There are whole worlds out there and there's a kind of sense of discovery and there's conversations you haven't had yet. Right. So it's it's both and like it when you connect with a stranger and feel understood, it's like, yes, we're on the same page. Even if it's about something small, even if it's kind of laughing at something absurd in a checkout line or kind of sharing a vulnerability in a waiting room in a medical situation, you might feel like you have a lot more in common with people than you realized if you're feeling disconnected from other people in your life. But you also can be reminded that people come from all walks of life and there's so much to learn. So before we go too deep into the value of talking to strangers, um, I think it's important to talk about how we can do that safely and some ideas about boundaries and guardrails and protecting our own vulnerability. As a psychotherapist, what would be your thoughts on that? My thoughts are that it really depends on where we are. And I think that self-awareness about capacity is really important. There are times when you might feel like reading a book or listening to music and you don't want to talk to anyone. And I think that knowing that you're in that mood it's really important to honor it and kind of make that policy for yourself. So if you want to go to the hairdresser and put put your nose in a book and not engage in conversation, that's your right. And there are polite ways of doing that. And I think I think it can be a mistake when there's a kind of emotional creep when I don't mean a creepy person, but an, an emotional creep where you find yourself having chit chat with someone where it's not really serving you and it's draining you and you don't want to be in the conversation and you somehow feel stuck and locked in. And when it's with a stranger, it's really important to recognize that you always have the right. It's kind of like ongoing consent. You always have the right to change the dynamic and pull away and you can do it politely but firmly and that can be with lines like excuse me but i i need to read something work related i mean you can come up with an excuse if you want to or you can close your eyes if you're traveling somewhere or you can simply say i 
I'm too tired to speak or find, find something that feels natural and right for you. But I think that feeling pulled into an endless conversation with a stranger can be oddly kind of violating if you're not in the mood. If you are in the mood and you're receptive and curious and ready to engage with people, mm-hmm. it's still possible that things can go wrong. You could be met with rejection or rudeness or projection, all sorts of things, let alone actual danger. So I think it's important to always allow for ongoing assessment. You can you can enjoy chatting with a stranger and that doesn't mean you have to trust the stranger and overcommit. And I think there's a balancing of intuition and need. Sometimes we might need to talk or we might need to feel seen or heard, but if we're checking in with our gut feeling, with our intuition, it might start sending us a totally different vibe. And if we lean into our need and away from our intuition, we may go too deep into a conversation with a person we should have pulled back on. So true. And actually, I I know someone who at a desperate moment connected with someone who was selling a newspaper and they had this kind of meaningful, intense conversation. And the next day, the newspaper guy showed up at his house because he'd given his address and he'd, he'd gotten giddy and kind of carried away in wanting to almost merge with this stranger who turned out to be problematic. And I think it's almost like being aware of drunk driving. Like when you're, when you're feeling emotionally desperate, it also kind of puts you in a position of fragility. And I think it's easy to get overexcited in those moments of fragility. And it's important to kind of know that you need protection and wariness, even if emotionally you're longing to move faster. We spoke briefly off air about certain professions people feel very inclined to share with you in your free time um, about things that they wouldn't normally open up to someone else about. Um, I lived in a seminary for a part of graduate school. It was adjacent to my school. It was convenient and positive in many ways to be in that quiet community that allowed me to just truly walk next door and be, at, be on my campus. So I have the unique privilege of knowing that more ministers than the average person. And they have an occupational hazard if they meet a stranger in a, in a, in a confined space, say a dentist waiting room where it's clear you're all going to be there longer than you expected or on an airplane um, or in a grocery store line. And the person will turn to them and say, so what do you do? And if you are in what is considered to be a caring uh, profession, um, a therapist, a minister, a doctor, um, or you have a demeanor that other people receive as highly approachable. Um, one of the pieces of wisdom I received from these friends is to have a, um, a, a good fake answer ready. When, so when they turn and say, what do you do? They offer the um, occupation of the most boring conversation they recently had, for example. Yes. Um, I I have a friend who pretends to work in a grocery store because her personal story is so is so overwhelming 
that she has a problem of people wanting to tell her their stories or wanting to talk to her about her story. And so she just occasionally will say she works in a grocery store and and says nothing further. And she became upset because no one has any interest in her work as someone in a grocery store. So she almost became the character, like which sounds, which sounds bananas, I realize, but it's interesting and almost kind of fantasy when you start playing a different character or trying to protect yourself by, by fictionalizing. I think, I think it can take you into a different part of yourself because for this person, she ended up really empathizing with people who work in grocery stores and playing this part in the world kind of stretched her out of herself in surprising ways. So I think you can, you can think that something is boring. And even if that protects you from conversation with strangers, you might, you might even become interested in whatever the boring thing is. I did think that as I heard it out loud, I thought, well, there, there aren't really any boring people and there aren't any boring jobs. There are probably once, however, that if someone has a lot of time to kill, they don't want to take a deep dive with you into it. They want something that's going to fill them with some excitement in a space where they feel there's a great lull or um, invite them into a conversation where they're probably going to get to do most of the talking. And sometimes it can be boring to have a fascinating conversation with someone, which I know sounds completely contradictory. But if you're not in the mood and someone says, oh, I have a story for you, you'll like this. Or if there's if there's strong resistance and you're just kind of sealed off, then it can be incredibly boring, whatever the person is saying. So I think the boring thing is also quite interesting. In the U.S., they have um, recently released a number of studies and statements that there's an epidemic of loneliness. You're in the U.K., and I believe there's been some similar um, statements and finding as well. How can safe and meaningful connections with strangers help us with our loneliness? I think that... There's something consoling about anything that is human and compassionate. And it could be the smile from a receptionist. It could be a conversation about directions. It could be banter with someone at a dry cleaner where you might not even know each other's names, but you see each other and there's a kind of rapport. I think I think that being witnessed is meaningful and witnessing someone is also meaningful. So being kind to a stranger can can be really uplifting. I think it allows for a kind of sense of cohesion in the world even if you're not deeply intimate. And kind of takes you out of yourself in a way. And also there's the hopefulness that comes. So there's something about allowing yourself to recast who you are and how you present yourself. Like even if you're making something up or if you're telling the truth, you might end up telling your story or some weird part of your story to a stranger because 
because it's a chance to say it afresh. And the problem with feeling lonely with people you already know is that there can be a sense that your family doesn't get you or your friends misunderstand you or your partner is so critical of you and kind of doesn't see the best you. And sometimes with a stranger, it's, it's like you get a new a new start. I think it can also offer a fresh perspective sometimes. Yes. Say more. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, um, with every podcast that I've done, I've gotten a fresh perspective on something. And it's also it's also helped me come out of my introversion a little bit. I don't want to overstate that. <laughs> um, but I remember I was out with a friend and we were going to go to the movies. And so we stopped in this one place right near it to, to run an errand. And it turned out to be like that phenomenon where everybody's in line. How did everyone get the memo to come here at exactly this time? And so it was my turn at checkout and there were at least six people behind me when it was my turn. And I accidentally went podcaster on the on the checkout person. And I don't exactly know how I did it, but I just kind of physically leaned in and said, so how is your day? And the whole line stopped for five minutes where the person told me frustrations that had happened so far on the shift, plans for after the shift. I didn't ask any follow-up questions. I asked that question and listened with full attention. And so for about five minutes, they shared. And then they um, said, truly, thank you for asking. No one has asked me about me all day. I have just been yelled at. And then began scanning everything and handed me my bag. And and I, you know, went towards the exit. And my friend, who was um, the person who was behind me when we got to the exit, said, is the one who said to me, said, I think you just went podcaster on, on the checkout person. And I said, I think I did. But I think they they were glad that I did. Um, but I don't repeat that everywhere. I am still an introvert. But it is interesting when you offer someone a moment to fully be seen, who wants that moment and who doesn't. Yes. Yes. And there are times when offering compassion and being kind is hugely significant for another person. And and you feel... I don't want to make it too grandiose, but you feel you feel your own significance in the choices you make. So choosing to be polite to someone who is overwrought and dealing with one difficulty after another, and, and you might not ever find out about the difficulties, but choosing to be kind it can make a huge difference. So I think there's also something about defining our sense of values when when we go out of our way to kind of go to a good part of our character. I interviewed someone who wrote a book about how to have a meaningful life. And they're a professor in, I believe, Finland. And one of the assignments that they give their students is to basically do three random acts of kindness right before the midterm. And then they have a discussion in class, not really to pat themselves or each other on the back about how that felt, how it felt to take time during a very busy, stressful season, getting ready for 
you know, these big assignments, getting ready for midterms, big tests, to stop and suddenly spontaneously offer kindness to three different people. Not all of them were able to do the three acts, but everyone had the assignment and they came back with their reflections on it. And it ranged from someone calling their grandmother out of the blue, um, something that can fall through the cracks during a semester is those phone calls with people that you you know you should make, and then you get to a point of shame and embarrassment that you haven't called in so long, so then you don't call. Um, and so now that it was an assignment uh, to, to choose whatever you wanted, um, another person, someone came up to them as strangers do and asked for directions. And it was daylight and it felt very safe. So they said to the person who was clearly frazzled, it's not that far, I'll walk you there. And walked them to, you know, outside the building they needed and then turned and left. And so it was a range of things that people chose. And it was the feelings that they got from doing it that was so renewing, that made that really stressful time of year for all of them better. Right, right. Interesting. I also think as you're saying that, that conversations with strangers can help with social anxiety because it kind of prompts awkward moments and like surviving those awkward moments. So there's always risk, but it can be a healthy risk of like, if you ask someone for directions, they may say, no, sorry. You might get someone who tries to help, but has no idea. You might, you might be met with something clear and helpful, but it's kind of, getting people used to just surviving dialogue, even if it's imperfect, even if it's clunky. That reminds me of when I started doing academic conferences in grad school. And they have a reputation somewhat rightly earned of having the potential to create some cutthroat experiences. People have a a variety of different experiences they come back from, but since I had heard that that was a possibility, I wanted the first one I did to be far from where I was in school, where I did not know any of the other presenters, so that I could deal with the social anxiety. And if it went badly, it would have been with complete strangers and none of it would follow me back to my quote unquote real life. Right. And I think it's some of what you're saying, that if we can find a safe enough space with strangers to test out something that we have social anxiety about for whatever reason, it it has positives to it. Absolutely. And, And also knowing that you can survive embarrassment. Like if it goes wrong, it's not going to be that consequential. Do you have an example of a time that you tried that technique? Oh my God, so too many examples come to mind. I mean, where do I begin? Um, sure, I I was somewhere recently with a friend where we kept asking questions and like, it was as if we were invisible and unhearable and everyone seemed to hate us. I know this sounds incredibly paranoid, but it was like, why is everyone ignoring us or hating us? Like what is happening and why are we having this persecutory sense? And we were just pariahs. We were in this place where we didn't really belong. And it just was not 
particularly pleasant. And, and we left and we laughed about it. And I mean, it was really like we could not get it right, whatever, whatever we did, whatever we said. And I think that happens all the time. Like we, we get into situations where people have so many projections and so many biases. We are constantly at risk. Again, I think it's a worthwhile risk, but we're at risk for having conversations with people who, who, will see us inaccurately. And I say it's a worthwhile risk because I think that surviving embarrassment and then laughing about it with a friend or talking about it with a friend can also be really connecting. It's another way that strangers can help with loneliness. Like if you go out to a restaurant with a friend you haven't seen and you end up having some bizarre encounter with a stranger, it it can actually strengthen your dynamic with the person you've known forever. There's vulnerability in anonymity, the place that you and your friend went where you didn't fit in. It doesn't sound like you need to go back there or that you'd been there before. And so you can try it because it's low stakes. It's low stakes, yes. But there's a difference between attempting the vulnerability in anonymity online and in person. Do you want to kind of talk about guardrails we need there? Sure. So I will begin by saying I, I reached out to this woman I'd never met who wrote an article about someone I'd had a very tumultuous, traumatic relationship with years earlier. And I reached out to this woman in the middle of the night. I was in Ireland at the time. It was the beginning of the pandemic and I had a newborn and a five-year-old at the time as well. And I remembered the sound of the rain on the tin roof in this little cottage where we were living. And I was so lonely and so desperate and so, so kind of hungry for someone to understand the loss and the complexity of this particular person who I was grieving for. And this woman who had written this brilliant article years earlier, and I, I found her contact details and I sent her an email and I said, this is completely out of nowhere, but I loved what you wrote about this person. I felt like you were the only one who had insight I I am feeling all sorts of things. I mean, I didn't say too much about what I what was going on for me, but it was already massively exposing to kind of be in touch with her at all. And I press send. And I remember thinking, okay, the worst thing that could happen is she doesn't respond. And maybe she'll think that I'm weird for contacting her out of nowhere. She did respond with warmth and we slowly but surely formed a friendship and she's a different generation from me. She's in her seventies. She lives thousands of miles away from me. We've become unbelievably close over time and it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had the courage and the desperation to reach out and to take that chance. I think 
it's important to kind of have doses when you are taking those chances. So I didn't tell her my life story immediately. I, I allowed for a kind of ongoing assessment, but I also... I also recognized that there was a kind of crack that comes with a crisis that allows for light to come in. And and often it's crises that, that do allow for deep new connections or reconnections. But I think paying attention to red flags and signals of danger and alarm bells, it, it can feel like a nuisance when you're desperate to connect with someone and have it be great and kind of go into some fantasy realm that's romantic and perfect. I I think we have to be extra vigilant about assessing in an ongoing way and paint, like allowing ourselves an exit, even if we're excited and hopeful. Because I there are plenty of experiences I've had where I mean, and it happens in psychotherapy as well, going both ways, like where at first there's a great connection and then, and then something emerges and it, it goes terribly wrong. And I think that when it goes wrong, it's important to be able to acknowledge that and, and still be gracious if possible, not always, but you don't have to be beholden to a stranger. You mentioned that you made this decision to reach out during a time of being a caregiver and the isolation that can happen with moving in and out of caregiving roles and at times of loss of identity or loss of relationships. I think so many listeners can resonate with that. There are times when changes in our life mean that we don't have the connections or at least the recurring cyclical connections that we had with people prior to that. And we are thrilled when the DoorDash arrives or the delivery person brings a box and that need to greet them when they arrive to try to talk with them for a few minutes, even though these people are on tight schedules. It's that what you spoke of earlier about being witnessed, those moments of eye contact, of hearing another person's voice, of being witnessed in this world, there there is so much need to make connections, um, particularly in times when our, our life roles have changed. And I think people can feel embarrassed. Um, I did nanny work when I was in grad school and a lot of babysitting when I was younger than that. And I remember many of the new moms confiding to me how embarrassed they were about how excited they were to see the mailman and that they talked to him too much. And yet I think that need for connection and honoring it is really important. It's really important. And there is this weird shame of openness. Like maybe it's especially in England, but you're kind of supposed to already have friends you're not supposed to need friends. And there is something for a lot of people, people talk about this all the time in therapy. And sometimes it takes a while to even say it in therapy. Like, I don't feel connected to my friends or I don't have friends or I am kind of alienated from people and I would like to make new friends. And I think, I think it's kind of, 
deeply vulnerable to acknowledge the the lack when it comes to friendships. And yet there is always space for fresh new connections. Even, even if you have wonderful friends and you've got a full life, I think that there's always space. You might not be able to see people all the time, but there's always space for vibrant encounters and possibilities. And I also think it kind of keeps us in a forward motion. And again, like what's the saying, make new friends, but keep the old one is silver and the other's gold. Did you grow up with that rhyme as well? I I remember that rhyme. Yes. Um, But I think that when you look at people, when I think of my father in his seventies and as well as the woman who is now my fairy godmother, the journalist I talked about just now, they allow themselves to have new experiences with new people. And they st- they're loyal to certain people from their past. It's, it's not one or the other, but I think there's always a willingness and a kind of curiosity to find out about something they don't already know about. I think things that we've been touching on here are the value of acquaintances and the value of making the connections in those one-time meetings. Whether we're going to go into that shop again and talk to that person again, or whether someone's going to respond to our email or not, the value in what it sounds like we're talking about is developing a muscle Yeah. of making a variety of kinds of connections without pressuring them to become the best friend forever or the person who's going to answer 12 emails, but the reaching out and making what is in that moment, the healthy connection for you or the one that's possible for you. Yes. It's throwing a lot at the wall and seeing what sticks. So it's not, it's not a perfectionist stance. I mean, you can be a perfectionist. It's great if you are a perfectionist to do this. You can you can strive to have great encounters with strangers and then have someone be really grumpy or really horrible and unpleasant. Like there's no guarantee that you're going to get a perfect experience. And I think I think there's something about safety in numbers. Like when you're experimenting with anything that you kind of have to expect a bit of mess as part of the creative process. In academia, we get asked to move around a lot, Uh, whether it's an explicit ask or not, there can be a lot of moving. And there is a, a loneliness of moving to a new place and realizing you don't know anybody there. You don't have any friends there. Mm. I'm wondering about elevating the value of acquaintances just those acts of being witnessed throughout the day, throughout the week that you give and that others give to you. Well, and, and odd and surprising ones too. So I, I grew up knowing the artist Annie Albers and she adored this man who ran a petrol, sorry, you say gas, ran a gas station nearby and she would always get her car refilled at this gas station and I, I don't want to say his name, not that, not that I shouldn't, because actually it has been published. So can I say his name? 
If you have permission, go ahead. Mr. Anderson. And she always called him Mr. Anderson. And he always called her Mrs. Albers. And she was this German woman in her 80s, a formidable artist. And he was this competent gas station manager. And he would give her cups, these plastic cups, every tank he filled. And sometimes he would give her two cups. And she cherished these plastic cups. And I know that's not very (laughs) eco-friendly these days, but she allowed him to matter. And he allowed her to matter. It went on for decades. And Mr. Anderson was a really important feature of her everyday life. And it never went to the next level. It didn't have to. They didn't have to kind of turn it into a love affair or become best friends and invite each other to Thanksgiving, but it was pleasant and it was meaningful. I'm thinking that these different layers of connection, these different types of encounter are skills that we need for community building. As we look at how people have become so lonely that in a culture that celebrates the best friend forever and the besties and trips away with girlfriends and, and all of this kind of, emphasis that we see through media and social media of these intense bonding relationships. We're losing the emphasis on all of the roles of community. Yes. Yes. And I think, I think what you're talking about is also about respect and respect for kind of gathering with people who you might not have everything in common with and you might you might not even know people all that well but you're part of something i also think that community has a huge benefit for again safety in numbers one of the joys of social relationships outside of outside of a family structure is that you are allowed to connect with certain people at certain moments and closeness can kind of come in waves. And I think the demand or pressure to connect, to kind of perma-connect at all times with your nearest and dearest is simply unrealistic. And a community allows for diversifying sources of meaning. So you might, you might talk more with a person on one occasion and then with someone else at another moment. And you can kind of broaden and texturize your experiences. The woman that you emailed, um, you said she was an older woman. There is such value in reaching out to elders, whether we see them out in public or they, we notice them in a group that we regularly attend, but we haven't interacted with them. Um, there's often an empathy trust across that um, group of people who've lived a long time and have seen a lot of things um, can have such compassion for wherever you are in life. They've seen it. They've survived it. They know somebody who has, they can really normalize the long game. Totally. Totally. And they can be kind of unofficial mentors. And of course, with any of these things, it can go too far. Like you could idealize a mentor and then be profoundly disappointed. But I think allowing for guidance, allowing for help and allowing for 
unlikely connections that are with people from from different age groups. I also think that there's a lot to be said for connecting with a child or with a young person. Of course, recognizing the huge power differences and the huge differences of context and circumstances, but it it kind of gives you a wider vista for thinking about life issues. And I think we get trapped in echo chambers all the time. I mean, as a psychotherapist, I have to remind myself constantly to step outside of the kind of expertise circle of just thinking that being a psychotherapist is the way to understand people and thinking that I kind of have any kind of answers. (laughs) I'm really now denigrating myself, but like when I start to be a know-it-all, that's always the tell for me. If I think I know what's coming or that I'm kind of hearing the same stories and I can, I can read situations and see the themes. And like, when I think, oh, I I know this one, I've heard this one about human issues, that is a big signal for me that I need to step outside of my comfort zone and spend time with people who aren't psychotherapists, who aren't necessarily even in psychotherapy, who have just a completely different experience of life and that I have a lot to learn. I think that touches back on the idea of the fresh perspective. When someone needs to talk about something, they probably are trying to talk to someone different than who they've spoken to before because the conversations they've had before have not met them exactly where they are. They met them exactly where someone else has heard or seen that situation before. Right. But not where the person who's talking to you right now is and is trying to get that one. And it may even be to you a small detail, but to them, it's the piece that's making them not fully seen or heard. Right. Right. So I've I've had a lot of clients when they're dealing with grief who feel incredibly lonely in their grief and they can feel incredibly lonely with their family members and friends who who have lost the same person but it's an entirely different relationship that has been lost and this happens with siblings it happens with relatives and then there can be surprising connections with people in grief where I, there's a sense of understanding but it's also it's also a feeling of misunderstanding when people think they know. I think that kind of knowingness can be a huge problem and connecting with strangers can take us out of the knowingness. There's grief among the living. The person who's still very much alive, but you have tremendous grief for that relationship. Yes. Um, And there are times of the year where that's really highlighted. Yes. And while I would argue that in the States, we do not do well with grief for those who have passed. As a culture, there's an idea that you should be over it already, or why are you still talking about that? Um, The grief of the living is often very unwelcome conversation. But you are... And sometimes... Those conversations we have with strangers 
can give us a reconnection to the living without the pressure of a relationship. Yes, because they're minimal social interactions. They're, they're kind of, they're fresh and also they're not utterly consequential if it doesn't work out. And they're revalidating. Yeah. That stranger sees you, they hear you, and the grief of a relationship with the living is often that they don't really see you and they don't really hear you. Yes. Yes. And sometimes there's that aha moment of, oh my God, someone else gets this. Or you hear your own voice as you as you tell a story and you say something and it kind of lands in a different way. So often when we feel disconnected from people and we're grieving for living people, we might tell the same story or bits of the story and say it in the same way again and again. And we can, some of us get stuck in repetition compulsion and fixate and even obsess. And I think, I think that when you kind of go back to the beginning, it can be surprisingly bold and kind of creative in a way. So very often people will say, I don't want to start with a new therapist. Friends of mine have this issue all the time and I've had it. Like I'll stick with the familiar. I'll stick with the therapist who doesn't, who isn't really helping me, but I don't want to, I don't know where to begin. Or if you've never had therapy, like it's daunting because you don't really want to go there. You'll have to kind of go through all of your life issues and where to start. And then you just start somewhere. And it's amazing to discover that something is possible, even, even in a small way, when you begin to describe your story. So even if you think you know your story, it, it can suddenly appear different. Sometimes when we talk to someone we don't know very well, um, because maybe we're hoping to be asked questions we're not normally asked, what's something you wish I would ask you? Oh, I, hmm, I wish you would ask me what I have found to be most disappointing recently. Do you want to share what you found to be most disappointing recently? Sure. I've found, I've found certain family members to be incredibly disappointing. I found other family members to be wonderful and supportive, but it's, it's startling how disappointed I felt recently because it's very obvious and it's been a long time coming and I have, I've been weirdly hopeful that certain dynamics will change and that people will be the version of themselves that I want them to be. And it turns out, of course, not to work that way. And I think embracing, embracing disappointment is incredibly important in life and incredibly important in grieving for living people. But it does mean letting go of hope for certain situations, not hope for everything, but like recognizing that some situations are hopeless. I have a friend who told me that whatever is someone's superpower is also their kryptonite. 
Is that true with you and your hope? Yes, definitely. Because I I can sometimes be a romantic and I want people to be utterly wonderful. I also, I also want to connect with people and I can sometimes then be really, really disappointed when that doesn't happen or it's not a good idea. So I think... I think that anything that we really care about and that we're good at is is definitely a strength and a weakness and can turn. I mean, it it kind of depends where we invested. The other thing is, and what a great line from your friend. The other thing is, like, sometimes we give our gold away to unworthy sources. So that sounds quite kind of haughty the way I've put it, but investing emotionally in relationships that reliably disappoint and fail, like banging your head against a wall. I mean, I I think there can be a kind of overcommitment emotionally to to really depriving relationships. So letting go of hope, it's it's really essential. The empathetic people that I know can end up with a number of people who have close access to them who are not equally yoked in the empathy department. So true. As we've been talking about making safe guardrails to take opportunities where they might arise, to talk to strangers, to have meaningful uh, opportunities for kindness, to have opportunities to learn from someone different from ourselves, perhaps because they're older or because we have to reach across through email to, to meet them. We have to also be mindful of the checks we're cashing against our own empathy bank account. Um, in your line of work, have you developed wisdom for how to do that? I think boundaries really, really are essential. And in therapy, I, I, have a system in place that is incredibly healthy. I that sounds boastful, but I get into trouble emotionally outside of my therapeutic relationships partly because the rules aren't defined and in therapy the rules are clear. I mean, I think you can be idiosyncratic within those rules and you can be flexible within those rules, but for instance with my clients the work happens in the sessions and and then of course thoughts occur between sessions and the occasional communication if there is a situational crisis if there are other reasons scheduling i mean i'm not rigid about these things but i am aware of limits and i think it's the limitations it's the kind of frame that allows for the freedom within so it's a bit like with a painting, having a frame around the painting then creates incredible possibility by setting those parameters. But it's when it's when you're in a situation and you're giving empathy in a boundless way that I think I, you can you can overgive, overspend, and suddenly realize that you're impoverished and that it's deeply asymmetrical. And there can be a kind of generosity remorse that happens in friendships and even with acquaintances and with people, with relatives, with people 
anywhere where you, if you, if you are a super empath, you can feel a kind of burst of enthusiasm and maybe guilt or whatever else motivates you, but you can go above and beyond and it feels okay. It feels okay. It feels okay. And then suddenly there's that realization that you've been, that you've been robbed, that you have been depleted and wiped out and it's not fair. And I think that being aware of limitations from the start, like keeping generosity in check, generosity is great, but it also can be, it can be imposing and it can be destructive going both ways. So when we start using our uh, social muscle to try to talk to more people or try to make more eye contact or try to be as present as we can in the moments where we are out and about, those boundaries that we set for ourselves or that we encounter in others are not to be interpreted as rejection, but as health. Yes. I mean, I love that you're saying that because of course it can feel deeply offensive to people when you're not available at one in the morning for an emotional conversation, when you're not going to drop everything to be at someone's side because, because it really doesn't work for you. Or if you, if you change the dynamic, I mean, it's often when you change the dynamic, if you have been giving too much, if you have been paying for every meal, because let's say you earn more money. And although it's not always about actual money, let's say one person is going through a really hard time and it starts off as you wanting to cheer the person up and then suddenly you're paying for too much and it it gets lopsided. I think we always have the right to calibrate and recalibrate boundaries, but it can come as a shock. And I think being clear about those adjustments sometimes helps for for really explaining the need for kind of symmetry to some degree, like equality, give and take. Particularly if we want the relationship to have some sort of longevity I think, it has to have renewing qualities to it yes and I think it can be a great act of kindness to to be clear about those difficulties like it might be awkward it might be hard to say it might feel counterintuitive if you're just conditioned to give and give and give and then suddenly you're not in the same way but it also it also gives a relationship, a chance to address underlying problems by by taking responsibility for boundaries. And I think it's the empath's responsibility as much as the empath beneficiary or whatever you want to call it. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I, I hope that it sparks a kind of awareness of how emotions play out in our encounters in surprising ways, like the emotional charge of all, all interactions. And that would include those moments of wanting to go inward and, and protect yourself. I think that I, I hope that listeners have a sense of self care in allowing for connections with strangers, but also allowing for boundaries. 
Thank you so much for being here today, Charlotte Fox Weber, and helping us unpack how we can have encounters with strangers that are unexpectedly meaningful and safe. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.